Good evening, brothers and sisters and friends and visitors. It's wonderful to see you here this evening. I have an announcement to make. I know the future. No, I really mean it. I promise you I do. When we hear a statement like that, we're immediately, we either think it's funny or we're skeptical, right? When we hear someone claim to know the future, it seems ridiculous, maybe. Because we know that nobody really knows the future, except, except for God himself. But as we'll see here in, in Daniel chapter 2, God reveals the mysteries of his eternal plans to his people. And knowing a certain future provides an unshakable hope for his people when they're in uncertain times. Knowing a certain future provides an unshakable hope for his people when they face uncertain times. Daniel and his friends, we saw last week, were taken captive by the Babylonian Empire. They were kept in King Nebuchadnezzar's palace, and they were trained in his literature and the language of the Babylonians to stand before the king with the rest of the king's magicians and enchanters and sorcerers and wise men. But Daniel and his friends, we saw, were remaining faithful to their God. And in our passage today, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has strange and troubling dreams. Now, in the ancient world, dreams were considered to be shadows of the future, sort of clues about what was going to happen. And so the king's dreams and the king's future were of particular importance because they didn't only concern him, but they concerned his whole kingdom as well. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want to take any chances with these troubling dreams, and so he calls all his spiritual counselors together, his wise men, his sorcerers, his enchanters, and he wants them to discern the dream and therefore his future. But Nebuchadnezzar is shrewd. He's clever. He wants to know for certain what this vision of the future meant, and so rather than tell these guys what he had seen, which would have been normal, he cleverly demands that they first tell him what he saw in his dream, and if they could do that, then he could be certain that they also knew the interpretation of the dream as well. And so in the first part of Daniel chapter 2, these, these wise guys go back and forth with the king. We see that in verses 4 through 11. And it's really interesting, if you look in your Bible, most Bibles will make a note at chapter uh, 2, verse 4. At the, in, there'll be a footnote that says, from this point till the end of chapter 7, the language of the book changes. It changes from Hebrew, which was the language of the Israelites, to, uh, uh, to Aramaic, which was the universal kind of language, the official language of the Babylonian Empire. Sort of like Hindi is the official language of India, but there are obviously lots of dialects that are spoken within that nation. Just imagine how jarring it would be to pick up a book, start reading it, and it starts in one language, and then halfway through a sentence, it shifts into another language for several chapters, and then goes back to Hebrew at the end of the book. That would be strange. Why does Daniel do that? Why does he do that here? Unfortunately, we don't see that in English unless we look at the footnote. 
Daniel is reminding the reader, the people of Israel, of their exile in this foreign land. But even more than that, as we'll see, he's reminding them that God's jurisdiction and God's claims are over not only the Hebrew-speaking people, but all the nations of the earth as well. This scene here with Nebuchadnezzar and these wise guys is funny. It's kind of comical because they have this back and forth, and we see through their interaction with one another that, first of all, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't really trust them. Did you notice that when Michael was reading it for us? He says that they're, they're taking time, they're buying their time, they're stalling in order to make lies. And the guys that he's talking to, they don't really trust their gods. First, he says, you're just trying to stall, and he's not going to deal with that. He says, no, I'm not changing my mind. The decision is firm. Because Nebuchadnezzar, he wants a word from the heavens. He wants to know for certain. He wants divine revelation, a message that's very clearly from God. These guys, though, they say to him, no way. No one can do that. It's too difficult. And no man on earth can do what you're asking of us. Only the gods can do that. And it's at that point we see the shallowness of their faith in their gods. They say their gods don't dwell with flesh. They don't care about humans. They don't care about even their own subjects. Because these are false gods. They don't, they don't exist. They're gods who are not really there. So Nebuchadnezzar flies into a rage, as he was known to do, and he says, kill everyone. Kill the whole court. All of these guys turn their houses into rubble. But unfortunately, that includes Daniel and his friends, even though they weren't there at the first interaction, they weren't present, but that includes them. They're part of the court. And so Daniel is faced with death. But once again, we see Daniel have faith in God. Daniel doesn't freak out. He's described as acting prudently or wisely. Again, we see he, he asks questions. He asks for a time to be appointed to see the king and to interpret this dream for him. And then in verses 17 through 19, we reach the turning point of the whole story of chapter 2, and we see Daniel model the natural response of a believer in crisis. When you serve a living God, a God who really is there, a God who really does care, when we're faced with crisis, even impending death, you go to him in prayer. That's what Daniel does. He gathers his friends and he starts a prayer meeting. I wonder how you respond when you're in crisis. With level-headed wisdom and prayer in community with other Christians? That's the way that Daniel responds, and it's because Daniel has a deeply held belief that God is in control. We saw that even last week, that God's in control of whatever's happening, and that God really cares about His people. If we believe that, then we will respond when we face 
challenges and crisis with prayerfulness and trust in the Lord. That should be what marks us as a church and even as individual Christians, that when we face trials, when we face difficulties, small or big, we should turn to the Lord in prayer. When we don't, we act as if we are functional agnostics or atheists. Agnostics believe that there there might be a God, but He's not really that interested in us. And atheists, we all understand, don't believe that there is a God. So if we are prayerless, we function as if we're just like them. As if He doesn't hear us or He doesn't care. Just like these guys and their false gods of Babylon. So Daniel gathers his friends and he tells them to seek mercy from the God of heaven. What an amazing description for prayer. Seeking mercy from God. Because Daniel knows God's there and he hears our prayers and that God isn't silent, he speaks to God. And he tells us, he knows that God speaks to us and he tells us who we are and who he is and what he's doing. Not often in dreams or visions as he did here with Nebuchadnezzar. Though God can do that, he can speak in dreams and visions. But we see that God speaks primarily in Scripture, just like the Scriptures that Daniel recorded for us here in his Word. You know, when you're holding your Bibles, right in your hands, you have a treasure trove of mysteries that have been revealed by God for us. Words that God has inspired for men to write down for us to know Him and to know how to live in this world and to know how to respond in crisis. Here in your hands, you hold what the psalmist calls God's Word, which is perfect, reviving the soul. God's Word, which is sure and makes wise the simple, which is right and rejoices the heart, which is clean and endures forever. It's true and it's righteous altogether. And these words, these pages of Scripture and the truths they contain are more to be desired than than gold, even much fine gold. They're sweeter than drippings even from from the honeycomb. That's how the Scriptures should be to the Christian. Daniel and his friends in the face of death, they pray, they turn to the Lord, and they ask for revelation, and God answers. How amazing that our God, who rules the universe, the stars, all the galaxies, also listens to people, even sinners like us. He reigns on high, but He responds to people, His people, when they're in need, and they turn to Him in prayer. And so here, right in the middle of the chapter, we get the main thrust of Daniel's message. Their God is the God who reveals mysteries. Their God is the God who reveals mysteries. Daniel responds with a prayer of praise, like those that we include in our services before COVID began and we had longer time for more prayers. We had often had prayers of praise or even what the pastors uh, model and lead us in when they do the pastoral prayer. There's often elements of praise we see Daniel's prayer of praise here in verses 20 through 23. 
And we see that Daniel worships and praises God for who he is and what he's done. He praises him because he's the one to whom wisdom and might or power belong. He owns them. Who gives wisdom and knowledge to those that have it. Who reveals deep and hidden things. And who had given Daniel wisdom and might in his time of need. He goes back and he requests to see the king again. And so the king asks, can you do it? Daniel, are you able to do what I've asked. Tell me the dream and to interpret it. And we see Daniel's response to this question in verses 27 through 30. It's interesting because Daniel starts with saying, your men were right. No man can show this mystery. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he speaks. What a contrast that is to what these other wise guys had said. That there's a God, but they don't dwell among those in flesh. Daniel perfectly recounts the dream. He explains it. We're going to think about the dream in a moment, but notice that Daniel continues to just give God credit, to give God the glory, just as he did last week about giving credit for God giving him wisdom and giving him favor. He just repeatedly stresses the fact that God is the one who's done this. God's the one who reveals the mysteries. He made it known what is to be. And and in case there was any confusion at all, he goes even further and says, but as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than any of the living. He says, I'm no different than anybody else. I'm not a superhuman. God is the one who's super. God revealed this mystery and it was not because of who Daniel was. And he concludes in verse 45, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. It's amazing. Daniel just, he models deflecting praise from himself or opportunities where he could take glory from something and he deflects it to God because Daniel knows that he can't take credit for what God alone has done. That ought to be our heart, our heart posture too. Giving glory to God, even when He's used you or me in ways that otherwise that other people recognize. We should say, "Praise the Lord, God did this." And to make sure that we say that no other God can do this, no other diviner, no magician, no enchanter, no astrologer can reveal mysteries of the future. Only God can because God reigns over all. Not just the present, but all of history. God declares the end from the beginning. He knows the things that are hidden in the darkness of the future. But why does any of this matter? Why does this matter to Daniel? Why has Daniel written this for us? Well, obviously, immediately it mattered for Daniel because God answered his prayer. God delivered him and his friends from certain death, as well as these ungodly wise guys. But why did Daniel write this down? Why did he choose to write these moments down in this book? It's important for us to keep in mind that Daniel is writing from exile in Babylon. His people are conquered and they're captives. They're facing persecution for their faith. 
on the one hand and temptation to conform to the world around them on the other. But Daniel's message is loud and crystal clear here. Those other gods and religions are worthless. They're empty. They're powerless. Their claims to access the hidden mysteries of the universe are false. There's only one God who reveals the mysteries of the future and of His eternal plans. Yahweh, the God of heaven and the God of earth, and He does dwell among His people. He dwelt with them in Jerusalem with the temple and the tabernacle, and now He dwells with them even in exile in uh, Babylon. And the same is true today for us. Living here in Dubai, we're surrounded by all kinds of gods and religions and beliefs and spiritual ideas. And for many, it takes religious shapes like the promises of enlightenment or meditation or horoscopes or star signs or mysticism. Name it and you can probably find it. Let me, let me ask you are, you, are you drawn to those things? Are you curious about those things? Are they interesting to you? Horoscopes or self-help books? Promises that you can change your destiny simply by sheer power of will or the power of positive thinking? Friends, these ideas, they aren't neutral. At their very best, the very best that they could be is stealing truth from God's Word, and at worst, they're lies of the devil. But it's not only explicitly religious things that tempt us and promise things. Sometimes the power and wisdom of the world comes packaged in secular wrapping as well, with promises of wisdom to secure your future through finances, or career progression, or cunning investments. The wisdom of the world looks outwardly very impressive. Qualifications, and influence, and status. But we can't put our hope in any of these things. We can't trust in them. At their root, like the diviners of Babylon, it's a sham. It's a lie. We mustn't put our hopes in any of these things, even though some of these things are good, careers and finances. A career path, a retirement plan, emigrating to, a right, to the right country around the world, all of them in a thousand years from now will be dust, long forgotten. They'll be worthless. In stark contrast stands the God of heaven high and lifted up, but also personal. Did you notice in the prayer Daniel mentioned that he's the God of our fathers? The God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. This God is intensely personal. He knows all things, controls all things, and works all things according to his will, but he also cares intimately about individual people. He works all things together for their good and His glory in His infinite wisdom, even when it seems hard like being in exile. And He's gracious enough to reveal His mysterious, eternal plans, not in every single detail that we might want, but with exactly enough detail for His people to have hope 
knowing that the outcome is secure. That's the point of this story. That's the point of Daniel chapter 2. While false gods of Babylon remain silent and distant and powerless, Israel's God is the true God. He's present. He's speaking to His people. And so He's worthy of their trust and our praise. Daniel and his friends model that for us. But you know, even the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges this. Look at verse 47. He says, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. None compares to this God. This God who reveals mysteries. He alone is worthy of our trust and He alone is worthy of our worship. So now let's consider finally the mystery that God did reveal. The mystery God revealed. We see that in verses 31 through the end of the chapter. This dream is foundational for all of the dreams and visions that are in the rest of the book, chapters 7 through 12, and especially especially Daniel's vision in chapter 7, which has four beast kingdoms that, that he sees. And so, each of those later chapters build on chapter 2 and what was seen here, and so it's important for us to keep those in mind. We won't be in Daniel for a, a few months, but it's important, so take time to study Daniel chapter 2 and maybe even read the rest of the book before we come back to look at it together. Daniel tells the king that the vision was of what will be in the latter days or the last days. As Nebuchadnezzar suspected, it was a window into the future, but it needed divinely revealed interpretation, and he didn't understand it. God needed to make it known to him. So in his vision, the king was seeing a picture of history up to the last days. God gave him a teaser trailer of the rest of human history. Everything from his day until the end to come. The vision and the interpretation are actually quite simple, yet the central message is incredibly profound. So Daniel tells him, you saw a great image, an enormous statue of a man. He was made up of four parts. His head was of gold, chest and arms were of silver, belly and thighs were of bronze, legs and feet were iron, and then iron mixed with clay. And while Nebuchadnezzar was seeing these things, a rock was cut out, but not by any human hands. This small and seemingly worthless stone, compared to the gold and silver and bronze and even iron, destroyed the whole statue. It, it hits the statue's feet, and the whole thing disintegrates into powder and is driven away by, like chaff would be driven away by the wind. But however, this little rock grew, started to grow into a huge mountain, which eventually filled the whole earth. And Daniel explains what this means. He says, you, King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold, and the God of heaven has given you this great kingdom. He's given you power. He's given you might. He's given you glory. And each of the four parts of the image correspond to other kingdoms which follow the Babylonian one. Each will be inferior to the one before it in terms of its glory, though still strong, 
and still with wide-ranging power. And the last kingdom will be strong as iron, but in the end it will prove to be unstable, being made up of different peoples who can't hold together. At that time, God will set up His kingdom. And though it starts small and seems insignificant, just as a small stone would, it grows and fills up the earth. And unlike those other earthly kingdoms, this kingdom shall never be destroyed. It will endure forever and ever into eternity. And Daniel concludes that God was the one that made this known, and it is certain. It is sure. There's no doubt about this. This will come to pass. It's interesting, Daniel doesn't seem really concerned with trying to decipher who the other kingdoms were. He just mentions that the kingdom of gold was Babylon, or the head of gold, sorry. And while I will share some suggestions as we get further into the book about what these other three kingdoms are, I don't want you to be swept up in trying to figure out who is who and when it happened, because that's not really Daniel's point. His point is that God's purposes are unstoppable. They're certain. They are sure. No human power can stop God's plans. God holds the kingdoms of the world in His hand. He gives them times. He gives them seasons. He removes kings and He sets up kings. And this was a really important message for the exiles, the people who God had chosen to be His people, who He had covenanted with, who He had promised that their king, King David, would have a son who would sit on the throne of Israel forever and ever. God wasn't done with them. God hadn't just given up on them when they had gone into exile. No, God had a plan. God had a plan for them despite their slavery and despite even their unfaithfulness to Him. And God's eternal plans are unstoppable. The kingdoms of man will not prevail, but the kingdom of God will endure forever. But God would bring about His purposes in a kind of shocking and surprising way. Just as King David destroyed the mighty Goliath with a tiny stone, a heavenly stone, cut without human hands, would strike the kingdoms of man and destroy them and bring them to nothing. And those in Daniel's day, they got a glimpse, but we see the full picture The kingdom of God will begin small but grow to fill up the whole world. And in fact, our series that Pastor Brian has been preaching through Acts has shown us just that. After the Lord Jesus had risen from the dead and before He ascended into heaven, He called His disciples together. And they asked Him, is now the time that the kingdom will be restored to Israel? And the Lord Jesus told them it was not for them to know times and seasons that the Father had fixed by His own authority, but they were to receive power to bear witness to the King in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the very ends of the earth. Every place where the kingdoms of men tried to squelch Christianity, they found that they couldn't stop it. It only grew and grew. Even Gamaliel in chapter 5 of Acts said this, you can't oppose God, He will win. And even now, today, Christ is building His church in all the corners of the earth. 
even where pressure is strong. Because God's plans, His purposes, and His kingdom are unstoppable. Even when they're killed, the gospel goes forth to the ends of the earth. The religious leaders and the Roman officials, they thought they could get rid of this king by killing him. And in fact, they just brought about God's kingdom purposes and plans. The Lord Jesus didn't come adorned in fine gold or silver or robes of purple or worldly majesty like the kings that we we see, like King Nebuchadnezzar or other kings. No, God the Son dwelt not only with flesh, but in flesh. God became man. He took the form of a servant to establish God's kingdom on earth. He taught that His kingdom was not of this world, and that He was the stone that the builders had rejected, but had become the cornerstone, the most important stone. He defeated human exaltation and rebellion in the most astonishing way, by dying. Dying for those who had rejected His rule over them and had established their own kingdoms. Those who had rejected God's call to reflect His image by ruling under His authority and His lordship. In death, God disarmed the rulers and the authorities and He put them to open shame. He triumphed over them in Christ. Through His death, Jesus took the judgment, the curse that rebels that set up their own kingdoms, deserve. And through His resurrection and ascension into heaven, King Jesus has been exalted. He's been enthroned. He's seated on His throne in the heavenlies. And from that day until now, His kingdom has been growing. Growing and growing and growing as sinners hear of this King and they bow their knees to Him in faith and repentance. Friends, if any of you are here and you don't have Jesus as your king, then you are part of a kingdom that will not last. It will fall. It will fail. God himself will bring it to an end and destroy it like we saw in this vision. If you don't turn from ruling your own life to allowing Christ to be your king and following him, you'll face him as judge. You'll be counted as a rebel and you'll face his wrath for all eternity. But the good news is that this king is merciful. Seek mercy from this king. Turn to him in faith. Bow your knee to him in repentance. Turn from your sins. Become part of his everlasting kingdom. Don't delay. Do this today. And brothers and sisters, like those in Daniel's time, we need to remember that we are exiles. This world is not our home. We're citizens of heaven, not this world. And the church, where we are right now, gathered together in the name of Jesus, this is our embassy. When we gather together as a church and sing God's praises, listen to His Word, and enjoy His supper together, as we'll do for the first time in months today, When we do this, we are getting a taste of heaven, our true home, our kingdom. We're acting as an outpost of this kingdom on earth. And we look forward together to the day when Christ returns and calls us home. Daniel reminds these exiles and us as the church in exile that it ultimately doesn't really matter who wins or loses the next election or the last one. 
which kingdoms rise or which ones fall, we know that they are accounted as less than a drop of water in a bucket in light of eternity. God's revealed the mystery of His plan to build His kingdom, His church, and even the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Nothing at all. Not global pandemics, not political parties, not even persecution can conquer God's kingdom purposes. An unshakable confidence that we'll spend eternity dwelling with this God means that we can have hope in the present, whatever we face. Whatever you're facing this week, remember that God's kingdom cannot be shaken. One pastor said it this way, as Christians, we've got to be the ones who walk around with a greater joy, a higher hope, a broader perspective, a deeper trust in the sovereignty of God. That doesn't mean these things don't matter, but in perspective, in light of God's eternal plans that can't be shaken, in light of that, they don't really matter nearly as much as the world tells us that they do. And so, brothers and sisters, I really can tell you your future. That's the message of Daniel 2. Don't despair, for our God reveals the mysteries of His eternal plans. His kingdom has come in a surprising way, not fully and finally, but it will when He comes again. And when He does, the kingdoms of this world will pass away and be no more. Only His kingdom shall stand forever. Let us not despair, though we don't see that yet, but place our hope in His certain and sure plans, remembering the words that our Savior said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise your holy name. And we do pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray that you would give us strength to trust in your eternal plans while we wait for them to be completed at the coming of King Jesus, in whose name and for whose glory we pray. Amen.